Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus. And every week we take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who are they? What made them so notorious? How did the internet or the algorithm choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleha Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take DC. We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey everybody, Robert Evans here, and for the last two years, Behind the Bastards listeners have funded the Portland Diaper Bank, which provides diapers for low-income families. Uh, Last year, y'all raised more than $21,000, which was able to purchase 1.1 million diapers for children and families in need in 2021. Um, And this year, we're trying to get $25,000 raised for the Portland Diaper Bank, uh, which is going to allow us to help even more kids. So, um, If you want to help, you can go to BTB Fundraiser for PDX Diaper Bank at GoFundMe. Just type in GoFundMe, BTB Fundraiser for PDX Diaper Bank. Again, that's GoFundMe, BTB Fundraiser for PDX Diaper Bank, or find the link in the show notes. Thank you all. Ah, we're back. We are. Yes. This is Behind the Bastards, a podcast hosted by you, Evans, Robert. And our guest today is Durante, Caitlin. It's me. I'm back. Hot dog. Show enough. Um, so, how how are we doing, Caitlin? I am doing all right. Learning a lot about Max. Nope, not Max. I, I know it's hard not to, right? <laughs> It's difficult not to. He's just in my brain more than John Landis, but learning a lot about John Landis. And uh, also I uh, 
went to John Landis's IMDb because earlier I was like, I couldn't name a single John Landis movie. Has he even made anything? Yeah, he's done and a bunch then of shit. Turns out he's <laughs> made so many movies that I have seen. Yeah, I guess he's, I a, he's an incredibly influential director, actually. <laughs> Turns out uh, uh, he's done some stuff. Mm-hmm. Good for him. Yeah. Like ISIS, you got to give him credit for a couple of things. Oh, for, for, uh, being active in the pursuit of their goals. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <clears throat> and also John Landis famously conquered a sizable chunk of Northern Syria. Robert. Task, I don't talk about that as much. Robert task at hand. That, that I'm always working on the task at hand, which in this case <sighs> is talking about John Landis's twilight zone movie. So, the climax of Landis's segment of the Twilight Zone movie was notably the only really big action set piece of the movie, right? There's not any other like war scenes or really like even all that action-y scenes, right? Like right. there's some cool shit, especially in um, Joe Dante's bit. But like this is the this is the only thing with like big explosions and shut and stuff. Mm-hmm. So one Slate article I found alleges that it was quote an excuse for director John Landis to capture immense explosions on film. Um, there have been allegations that the pyrotechnics that he was ordering people to use were illegally large. Um, mm-hmm. I can't speak to that, but I found nothing that makes me doubt the basic analysis, which is that John Landis had not gotten to direct a war movie yet, and he kind of used this as an excuse to do a big gritty war movie was um, this a, a a feature film because it's a se- one of four it's segments ch- it's like a, a 30 minute chunk 30 of a feature minute, okay. film basically okay, or less really i think probably more like 20 um yeah it's weird that he got so obsessed with like making a vietnam scene that was like brutally accurate in the middle of this twilight zone movie right um it's kind of a baffling call um, so yeah, the dude that he has flying the helicopter in this critical scene is the incredibly named Dorsey Wingo. Uh, and Dorsey is a Vietnam veteran who had flown choppers in combat, right? So he's, you would think pretty qualified for this very experienced pilot, mm-hmm. but he was really new to making movies. And during rehearsals, uh, he was deeply rattled by how close the explosions were getting to his aircraft. And again, mm-hmm. This is a guy who's been in combat in a helicopter who is scared by how close the explosions are to his helicopter on a movie set. Yeah. Yeah. And and again, if you are directing a movie with a helicopter getting shot at and your combat veteran pilot is like, Hey, this seems dangerous. You might be like, perhaps we're making a mistake because this is a movie and not the Vietnam war. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Things may be going a bit far. Um, John Landis does not have this moment of realization. Uh, Absolutely not. So in normal circumstances, Wingo probably would have said something about the fact that he was deeply frightened by how the explosions were getting close to his helicopter. Mm -hmm. But he's really new to movies, right? He had been working with helicopters after Vietnam for years, but he hadn't been in film. This is kind of like his first chance at like becoming a Hollywood stunt pilot. And again, Mm -hmm doesn't want to upset John Landis and get blacklisted. So Wingo, you know, since he can't, he doesn't feel like he can safely go to John Landis. He goes with his concerns to the unit production manager, a guy named Dan Allingham. And he tells Dan that uh, the pyrotechnics are way too close to the aircraft. Allingham agrees. And he says, Hey, obviously like safety first, right? Like we'll, we'll Mm -hmm. change things to make it safer. I'll go to John and I'll, I'll tell him we need to make some alterations. So, 
Allingham uh, later tells Wingo and the camera operator, Roger Smith, who also complained that everything's fine. He spoke to Landis. And during the next scene, they're just going to be flying over the water, filming Vic and the kids. Like they're not going to have actors on the ground alongside explosions. Like they'll, he's, he's worked it out with Landis. Mm -hmm. But then later that same day, when John Landis walks past Wingo and another crew member discussing how terrifyingly hot and close the fireballs had been during the last time they'd filmed the scene, Landis smiled and told them, you ain't seen nothing yet. So Landis is well aware of how dangerous this scene was, but he wants this shot. He has a very specific vision for how the shot's going to go. So he has associate producer, George Folsey, who's his number two man, basically go to the parents of the children on set and warn them. So, you know, they have explosions on this set. And if you have explosions on a film set, you have to have like a firefighter dude, right? Who's like your safety guy. And in this case, the guy who's the firefighter dude has also worked in like child protective services, adjacent stuff in the past. So Landis knows, Oh shit. If this guy finds out that we have a six and a seven year old illegally working at night with explosions, he's going to stop it, right? Yeah. Like, like as he rightly should. As he rightly should. So he has George Folsey go to the parents of these kids and tell them, quote, if the firemen approach you, please tell them that you are not working for us. Say you are my friend. You are here to help me. Don't tell them anything about the money or the children working. Okay. Now, I'm not going to spend a lot of time focusing on things the parents did wrong because spoilers, this ends in tragedy. Mm -hmm. But I will say as a parent, if that conversation is had with you on the set of a film time, time to get out. Time to get time to get rolling right along. <laughs> time to, time to bounce. A, that's you know, <laughs> it sounds like impending doom is yeah. just right around now, the corner. <laughs> I will say only one of the parents has is a, is a fluent English speaker. Mm. So the other parent um, doesn't understand what Folsey is saying. So Folsey gets an Asian friend who is on the cast to repeat it to her in Vietnamese. Mm -hmm. But the parent is Chinese. (laughs) So, so Folsey's Vietnamese friend just winds up repeating the message slowly in English. So at least one of the parents probably doesn't fully understand like what Folsey is doing here. Right. Right. Um, And how fucked up things are now. As you might have begun to expect by this point, neither Landis or Folsey had done a very good job of letting either set of parents know how dangerous the scene was going to be, right? They were not adequately informed of the risks. I mean, honestly, the pilot was not adequately, like, finds out how dangerous this is when they're doing the test passes and things are exploding next to him, right? Right. Um, I'm going to quote from the book Outrageous Conduct again. In these conversations, Folsey would summarize the final scene, mentioning that there would be explosives, but assuring the parents that the explosives would be nowhere near the children. Folsey was clearly nervous about the illegal hiring. He had always been an honest, decent person, and he did not feel comfortable breaking the law. Another secretary in the office, Cynthia Nye, remembers Folsey coming out of one meeting with Landis and production manager Dan Allingham. They had been discussing the hiring of the children, and as he left the office, Folsey joked nervously, we'll probably all be thrown in jail for this. Schumann claims that she asked Folsey at one point what the penalty was for working children without permits. As she recalled the conversation later, Folsey replied to her, a slap on the wrist and a little fine, unless they find out about the explosives. Then they'll throw my butt in jail. Hmm. So Landis and Folsey and Allingham are all very aware that they are like committing a serious crime here, right? 
Yeah. Now, on the night of July 22nd, 1982, Vic Morrow, who's again playing like the male lead in this, right? He's supposed mm-hmm. to be rescuing mm-hmm. these kids uh, from the this, this helicopter. Um, and both children, Renee and Micah, were placed in position at Indian Dunes Park for like a test uh, run of the scene. Uh, Indian Dunes is where at this point a ton of Vietnam War movies had been filmed. Here's how a Rolling Stone article at the time described the geography of this area. Mm-hmm. The park is actually a private property enclosed by steep chaparral covered cliffs at the base of one of those cliffs on the south shore of the Santa Clara River, a shallow slow moving stream that irrigates orange and avocado groves a few miles to the west. A Vietnamese village had been assembled out of bamboo poles, palm thatch, and cardboard. Right? So that's kind of the scene. And they're going to blow this village up, right? As the kids and, and Vic Morrow are like standing in like this this stream with the helicopter strafing them, the whole village is supposed to explode, right? Uh-huh. So both kids are nervous because explosions are scary to small children, uh, <laughs> as are helicopters. Uh, and to adults. Yeah, uh, and to basically adults. Basically anybody. Uh, Vic Morrow, being a nice guy, makes a bunch of funny faces to try to relax them. And he's so successful at this that the kids start laughing hard enough that they can't stop when Landis wants to start filming. So he has to ha- halt the scene and yell at the kids to stop laughing. Uh, the shooting goes well this night because, again, there's not explosions. Um, and then the parents are given $500 each in envelopes under the table and told to bring their kids back the next night. July 23rd, 1982 is the night uh, that they are set to film the final scene of Vic Morrow rescuing both kids by carrying them across the river while a U.S. helicopter attacks. He was supposed to say, I'll keep you safe, kids. I swear to God, as the village explodes behind them. As the parents of both children sit watching the final scene unfold, Renee's mother asks, is it dangerous? And Folsey says, no, not dangerous, just a loud noise. At 2.20 a.m., John Landis calls action. He yells, fire, 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 as two machine gunners pump blank rounds into the river. James Camomile, the pyrotechnician, begins setting off a series of explosions. It is immediately obvious that these are even larger and closer to the helicopter than the ones that had previously frightened the pilot. And as the pilot is zooming in over these explosions with the kids underneath them, Landis starts yelling at him, screaming over the mic, lower, get lower. Micah Lee's father, Daniel, who was a Vietnam War veteran, says that the blasts reminded him of real rocket detonations. Quote, I was so horrified, I was screaming. The second blast, I fell down on the ground. I cried, God, I was so fearful and I knew danger. It was not something made up, but real danger. Wow. So... Landis just keeps telling the helicopter to get closer. Two of the explosions detonate very, like basically right on the chopper, close enough that they have an effect not unlike anti-aircraft fire. The National Transportation Safety Board, in their analysis, would later conclude, quote, the probable cause of the accident was the detonation of debris-laden high-temperature special effects explosions too near a low-flying helicopter, leading to foreign object damage to one rotor blade and delamination due to heat to the other rotor Rotor blade, the separation of the helicopter's tail rotor assembly, and the uncontrolled descent of the helicopter. The proximity of the helicopter to the special effects explosions was due to the failure to establish direct communications and coordination between the pilot, who was in command of the helicopter operation, and the film director, who was in charge of the filming operation. So the helicopter mm-hmm. goes down, right? The explosions mm-hmm. damage it, and it crashes. Now, 
Landis had wanted the explosions to be close to the helicopter, and he had wanted that helicopter hovering right over the heads of Vic and the children for the same reason. He wanted the scene to look intense and frightening. His vision for the movie now led to a calamity. While roughly a hundred people watched, the helicopter plunged into the river. The right skid crushed six-year-old Renee, killing her instantly. The craft then toppled over on its side, cutting Vic Morrow and the seven-year-old Micah in half. (gasps) There's footage on this. You can find it on YouTube. It's not gory, but you see the chopper because the water kind of covers it. You see the chopper hit them. It's uh, pretty fucking terrifying. Like, Jesus. If you want to have knowledge of what that looks like, you can see it. I don't. Yeah. Um, But, I mean, okay. So, when I said horses maybe died or maybe people it was (laughs) no horses die (laughs) it was the people and it was um two of which were young young children yeah two of which together did not add up to 14 years of age oh horrible yeah this is it's pretty bad horrible yeah um and also um all there's six people in the helicopter right because there's folks filming too they're all hurt right none of them die thankfully Mm -hmm. but they're all injured um because helicopter crashes aren't great for your health so this is uh about the worst thing you could watch happen as a parent yeah Yeah. it's not not a lot that i could Mm -hmm. imagine being higher on that list um So there's obviously in the immediate aftermath of the crash, there's silence, right? As everyone kind of like grapples with what has happened. Mm -hmm. And then Renee's mother begins to scream. John Landis, who being the guy that John Landis is, still feels a need to act as if he's in control of the situation, says, that's a wrap. Are you kidding me? Uh, it's it's now it's one of those things he he goes on to say like leave your equipment where it is everyone go home please everyone go home like right obviously someone needs to announce that like filming is over I guess I don't know someone needs to announce something for what I I don't think the right thing to say is that's a wrap I'm sorry I just don't like I really don't think that's the right thing to say after you have gotten two children and a stuntman killed killed not the right thing to say at all. Oh my God. John Landis. John Landis. Mm-hmm. But on the other hand, we got Animal House out of his career. So who can say if it was worth it? And then, okay. So then I, he goes on to direct. Um, what uh da, 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 sorry i have a bunch of shit a bunch of stuff we'll talk about some of the shit he goes on to direct um in just a little bit but you know what, what we're going to talk about right now caitlin is uh, is it products and services yeah and the products and services in this podcast caitlin not once have they been involved in a fatal helicopter accident i'm so glad to hear that's that. that's the absolute guarantee we make um unless corporation winds up uh ever supporting us in which case they've been responsible for a lot of deadly helicopter accidents um but that's a problem we'll cross when we finally get that big sponsorship Mm -hmm. but i've always thought we're more of a podcast right sophie 
I find you to be so annoying. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, well. <laughs> you know what else is annoying? Not having the great taste. Mmm. Mm-hmm. Are you really doing an ad for That's good. Right now, like they don't haven't done anything bad because I that's why I said the great taste of Unlike the terrible helicopter crashy taste of, of products. So there, Sophie. <sighs> Robert, it's time for an ad break. It sure is. The evidence keeps pouring in. At this point, the facts are undeniable. It's an open and shut case. Monopoly Go is the most fun you can have in a mobile game. Millions of people pass Go every day because this game is always bringing something new to the table. Countless crazy tournaments you can join with your friends as partners or teams. Constantly changing challenges like money sprees or treasure hunts that keep it fresh with new wild mini-games. Timed events offering bonuses like massive multipliers or rent frenzies to help you get huge rewards. And there's so many rewards to discover. Rare stickers you can trade with friends to complete albums. Delightful emojis to taunt people with when you raid their riches. Unique playing pieces and so much more. The verdict is in with Monopoly Go. There's something new to discover every time you play. So don't miss out. Go download it now for free on the App Store and Google Play. Bean Dad. The Dress. 30 to 50 feral hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus, where every week I take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who were they? What made them so notorious? Why did the internet choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? I'll be talking to internet historians, experts, and yes, the main characters themselves to get a fuller picture. Because I think that even outside individual experiences, a character of the day tells us something about how the internet worked at that time and how the attention economy developed into the freaky three-headed dragon it is today. Together, we probably won't be able to properly log out, but we can take a walk down scary internet memory lane and see one day a little more clearly. Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. We started talking about this incident. Drugs and uh, officials cover up. <laughs> you couldn't believe it. From iHeart Podcasts. It's like the police knew who he was before they got here. A story about money, power, and corruption. The medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. He's breathing right now? Yes, he's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. There's no way that that guy's a doctor. I'm Paul Pringle, and I'm an investigative reporter for the LA Times. This is the story of an investigation that starts in a hotel room in Pasadena, California, and reaches all the way to the top of two of the most powerful institutions in the city of Los Angeles. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. This is Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption. We're always going to have predators. It's the good people who stand by and do nothing that allow them to flourish. Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, everybody, welcome to Across Generations, where the voices of Black women unite in powerful conversations. I'm your host, Tiffany Cross. Tiffany Cross. 
I want you all to join me and be a part of sisterhood, friendship, wisdom, and laughter. In every episode, we gather a seasoned elder. But even with a child, there's no such thing as the wrong thing if you love them. Myself, as the middle generation, I don't feel like I have to get married at this big age in life, but it is a desire I have and something that I've navigated in dating. And a vibrant young soul for engaging intergenerational conversations. I'm very jealous of your generation (laughs) that didn't have to deal with Instagram and Tinder. This is Across Generations, where Black women's voices unite, and together, you know how we do, we create magic. magic. Listen to Across Generations podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Ah, we're back. Caitlin, how we doing? I'm doing good. Um, okay, so uh, after this, he he directs the thriller music video. He sure does direct the thriller he music directs, video. Um, what are the things I'm familiar with? Three Amigos. He directs Three point, Amigos, which that's is a right. Movie. Another unpopular opinion that I have is that that movie sucks. I hate, hate, hate. There's like hate 20 that movie. good minutes in that whole movie. And there's a lot of shit in between. I do not like it. Um, coming to America. Um, trading I like Coming to America. Really enough. It was right before, or at least yeah. it's released before Twilight Zone movie. One of the fucking, um, one of the write-ups about this disaster I found, like really shits on Coming to America. I think just because it's the, like the first big hit Land has had after the accident, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. which like, I don't get, like, I think it's, my recollection was Coming to America is a perfectly fine movie. One of the better Eddie Murphy movies. Um, I tend to agree. Yeah. I mean, um, except for, Shrek and well, yes, Shrek of two, uh, and of course Shrek <laughs> and the, three, and of course Shrek, and of course Shrek four. Yeah, how many Shreks did we wind up getting? There are four, and a fifth one is, I think, past development. I think it's it's oh, coming really? out soon. Well, this this is the best chance so. we've had in years of getting another Austin Powers movie. <laughs> Wait, Shrek 5, hang on. This is, we just have to pause because this is important. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Shrek 5, uh, uh, oh, according to fandom, Shrek 5 might be released on September 30th, 2022. Uh, <laughs> sounds like really good information that is definitely probably correct. Anyway, we can move away from Shrek. Maybe. <laughs> I guess. Should we? I mean, no. Um, this the the. I actually plan to just talk about the Shrek movie, which has a pretty Titanic body count. Um, although that's <laughs> primarily because in order to get some of the shots they needed, they had to back a brutal civil war in Ecuador. But you know, the Shrek franchise. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, like, yeah it's uh, uh, the only way you could get that realistically rendered of a donkey. Um, that's true. So, you know, John Landis gets two children and uh, Vic Morrow horribly killed. Um, really terrible deaths. Yeah. Um, and, y- you know, this is going to cause problems, right? Um, Hollywood is pretty good at, at 
sh- smoothing some things under the under the table, right? Mm-hmm. But this is this is a problem, right? This, this is a big too story. Noticeable. Yeah, um, children cut in half by helicopters are gonna. There's gonna be some legal stuff. That that's gonna come out. Yeah, a little bit. So the wheels of justice, or what passes for the wheels of justice, start to churn up after this. Uh, the first court cases that kind of get resolved, at least, are lawsuits from the families of the children who get killed. Uh, the Chin family file on August 3rd and name both John Landis and Steven Spielberg. Because again, St- Spielberg is producing this alongside John Landis, right? Mm-hmm. He is he is involved in this whole thing. We will talk some more about the degree to which maybe he's culpable here because sure. it's very murky, right? He immediately leaves the country. Um, we'll talk about that more in a second. Um, as does, um, oh God, what's her name? The Kathleen lady who uh, wound up running Marvel. Uh, what's her I have, name? I don't know. One sec. One sec. I don't care about that behind the scenes people in movies. Uh, Kathleen Kennedy, uh, who is also oh, helping okay, to produce this. She also lady. fucking books it, right? Yeah. Like both Spielberg and Kathleen Kennedy are like, because, you know, we should probably not be around for this. <laughs> I don't want to get involved in. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um so, yeah, the uh, the first court cases that follow this are lawsuits from the families of the slain children. The Chin family files on August 3rd, and they name, yeah, uh, Landis and Spielberg, as well as mm-hmm. uh, Folsey and Wingo. Um, Folsey's the associate producer, and Wingo's the pilot, uh, in their request for damages. Micah Lee's family files suit a year later. These all do get settled out of court. Um, now, one for an example of kind of the crapulence of big studios when Warner brothers is named in the chin lawsuit. Mm-hmm. Cause right there, they have some culpability too. their law firm argues that the studio should not be liable because quote the risk. If any risk there was, was knowingly assumed by the decedent Renee Shin Yi chin, who was again, Are six you choking me right now yeah first off the risk if any there was you can't have if any there was in there when three people have been cut to pieces by helicopter rotors okay like (sighs) you can't say was there really a risk yes there was a risk yeah that everything about that sentence is wrong yeah it's uh, unbelievably like it's a strong case that entertainment lawyers should be boiled um (laughs) Yeah. yeah. Uh, so Ugh. these civil lawsuits are all eventually settled. We don't really know like what kind of money the families get. I hope mm. it's a lot. Mm. Like, you know, mm-hmm. but uh, we don't really know. But of course, that doesn't end kind of the legal stuff around this because three human beings have died gruesome deaths. Two of them are children who have been hired illegally. So the state of California needs to determine if there was any criminal liability for the accident. Uh, District Attorney John Vandekamp assigned prosecutor Gary Kesselman to the case and an LAPD sheriff's detective assisted. The investigation found the things that I have noted already. Um, They find like Folsey saying, oh, I'll go to jail for this. They find that you know, the children uh, have been illegally hired, that this has been hidden from the fire safety officer. So uh, they, they're like, well, there's enough here to convene a grand jury for fucking sure. Um, mm-hmm. Which, you know, one of the rare times I'll be like, yeah, that LA sheriff's deputy was more or less right. <laughs> um, <laughs> so they convene a grand jury. Um, and when you convene a grand jury, that means that there's enough evidence that there's something wrong 
that you're going to bring the people involved in front of a jury and have them be questioned, right? And mm-hmm. then the jury's going to decide, do we indict? Which means, like, do we actually charge people with a crime, right? Um, right. So they, the Folsey winds up in front of the grand jury, um, who he says that, in, and in front of the grand jury, Folsey says, in retrospect, it would have been better to shoot the helicopter and the actors at separate times, <laughs> which... No shit. I'm glad you can see that, buddy. <laughs> yes, in retrospect, it would have been better to not do the thing that got to three people killed. Do the, there was adequate technology mm. at the time that, yeah, you can like superimpose uh, two there things was, together. If you could, I mean, if you could have explained the concept of a helicopter in 1899, there was adequate technology for them to have said, no, this sounds like a bad idea. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. Oh, no wonder everything is yeah. like CGI these days. As much as I love a practical effect, if it puts well, anyone could, in danger. You could have had a practical effect and like puppets. And sh- like there's way that people there's have way, done scenes so like ways. this that did not endanger human life. Right. So many um, ways. Or to at do least it. not children. Right. Like that. One of the things happening here is that like no one's getting charged or even like attempted to be charged with um with um vic morrow's death because as questionable as some of the decisions made he was an adult who chose to be in a really a situation he knew was dangerous you know um which is still wild i mean they're still fucked up but like (laughs) these are children children. (laughs) they cannot and uh, honestly their parents can't consent to put them in that danger you're not allowed to do that they're children and and (laughs) they're not given any of the information and children are famously uh not very good at advocating for themselves nor fully understanding i mean so much of our society exists to stop people from doing things like this to children (laughs) right um this is why you can't put them in coal mines anymore (laughs) so um i'm gonna quote for more on how this grand jury goes from crime library quote John Landis testified and blamed underlings for the tragedy. He said that he had assumed Stewart and Wingo had worked out the coordination of their jobs. He did not make certain of it because I assumed if these men are experts licensed by the government to do their jobs, they've done their jobs. Kesselman pressed on as to why he did not make sure they talked because when you get into a taxi, Landis replied, you assume the driver is not going to drive you off a bridge. It's just assumptions. The guy is a licensed taxi driver. These are experts. Later, the prosecutor began, the final authority in terms of camera, actor positions, helicopter, or whatever on that set is not mine, Landis broke in. Because if I ask an actor, I said, would you please take your hand and stick it in this garbage disposal? The actor is going to say, of course not. So he's accepting absolutely no accountability for this. No, no. The director should be the ultimate authority on set, but also should have no responsibility when things go wrong. (laughs) Right. Oh, Oh my gosh. He, as you've said, was like... No, these these explosions need to be closer. You ain't seen nothing yet. Like he was constantly, despite many people protesting and saying this is not safe, this is dangerous, this is yeah. going to lead to bad things. He was like, "But my vision, uh, but yeah, the I, realism." <laughs> I, I must make a perfectly accurate Vietnam War scene in this Twilight, Twilight Zone, Zone movie, movie about a time traveling racist. Yeah. <laughs> embarrassing Um, it's what a loser he sucks for sure um 
He's 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 definitely a, a pe- <laughs> he real so bad. You know what? Poopy. That's what I'll say, Caitlin. <laughs> to quote Jamie Loftus, pee pee poo poo. Wow, wow, mm-hmm. powerful, powerful. To quote the award winning Jamie Loftus, pee pee poo poo. Mm-hmm. Who I am feuding with, feuding and fussing. Just the hypocrisy of yeah, being like. Uh, no one questioned me. Yeah. Every choice I'm making is the best. I have ultimate power and control here. Yeah. And then when something goes wrong, well, I did. I don't know. I it's assumed it was fault. safe because they didn't say anything. If, if it, it was, it was the um, helicopter operator. Such a fault fucking for me. Fucking uh, putting explosions and look, right next to him. Definitely a case to be made that the helicopter operator and the pyrotechnician have some degree of culpability here, right? Um, I'm not saying they don't mm. because they are professionals and the fact that they could have suffered career consequences from complaining doesn't mean they shouldn't have said something, right? Um, True. But again, like, the director is the dictator of the film set. He has absolute power. That is less the case now because of this accident. We'll talk about that in a little mm. bit. But at this time, he has absolute power the buck stopped with John Landis, or at least it should have, right? Um, yeah. He was the motherfucker who was making the calls here. Um, mm-hmm. And it's kind of like he keeps, he compares it to a taxi driver and like, well, look, it's not my fault if I hire a cab driver and he crashes. Like, well, okay, but if you hire a cab driver and then you force him at gunpoint to do body shots while driving the cab and then he crashes, mm-hmm. then you you are responsible you are for that responsible. car crash, actually. Because <laughs> um, he would not have been drinking if you had not been forcing him to do it. Um mm-hmm. Which is not to say that it's wrong to force your cab driver at gunpoint to drink. That's a that's a fun time. That's like I'm not a yeah. cool party time. It is a cool party time. And cab drivers love being forced to do shots. <laughs> that's the motto of this show. Mm-hmm. It is not. Threaten a cab driver. Anyway, it um <sighs> it could be, Sophie. Allegedly. It could be. So obviously a grand jury indicts the shit out of John Landis, um, along with Folsey and Allingham. uh, They are charged with manslaughter in the deaths of Renee and Micah. Again, they're not being charged for Vic Morrow's death. The charges are based on the fact that the deaths had occurred during the commission of an inherently dangerous, unlawful act. And that unlawful act was the illegal hiring of children, right? So the fact that they're getting charged with manslaughter, that manslaughter charge relies entirely on the fact that those children were legally being employed, right? Does that make sense? That's why Moro, no one's getting charged for Moro's death. It makes sense because I understand what you're saying, but it also doesn't make sense because I, I, it should yeah, just be yeah. illegal to... I, I, yes. I'm not <laughs> trying to make a Moro case. everything that but happened like, on this set. You know, the law is the law. It has nothing to do with morality. So I'm, I'm trying to explain, like, this is legally what's going on. Here. Right, right, right. Um... So, again, the crime is not just that they got people killed. It's that those people, the people they got killed could not legally have been on that set when they got killed. Right. That's what makes it not just an accident, but adds like the criminal responsibility. I see. Um, So Kesselman decides not to try and get an indictment against these guys for the illegal hiring of the children itself or having them work past curfew. 
Um, these would have been slam dunk convictions. Obviously, they were blatantly guilty, um, mm-hmm. but both would have had like ten day maximum jail sentences because um, they're more like maximum. Yeah, because it's just, like illegally having kids work at night and stuff isn't like a serious crime on its own. I guess a felony. Um, yeah. It's not like yeah, it's not like hard time or whatever. And right. Kesselman. I'm not going to like make a stance on whether he made the right call or not. The reason he doesn't go for these slam dunk uh, convictions alongside manslaughter is he's worried that if the grand jury has the chance to like indict these guys on something easy that's lighter than manslaughter, that they'll go with the easy charges and they won't go for manslaughter. I see. He's again, it's like the prosecutor in this. He's he's you're always playing kind of a game with the jury here. I'm not a mm-hmm. law expert. I'm not going to give an opinion on whether or not this is a good call, but this is the call that he makes. Right. Um, so the case churns churns forward. And while this is happening, obviously, the dead people are having their funerals because that's what you do when people get killed um, mm-hmm. in one of the most unfucking hinged moments in Hollywood history. John Landis decides to attend all three ceremonies. All three funerals? Yup. <laughs> is okay. he super apologetic? Now, there is some speculation but, that he was advised to but not just attend. was he like, did he go in, he was super apologetic, da 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 No? No? <laughs> Sophie, that's a fun question. Absolutely not. <laughs> oh, but good. he does do the opposite of that. Um, <gasps> there no. is speculation that his lawyers advise him to not just show up, but to speak at the funerals in order to oh, sh- no. seem deeply hurt by what has happened. Um, now, in all cases, the families beg him not to come, right? Like, yeah. nobody wants John Landis at these fucking funerals, you know? No. <laughs> not only does he come, but he makes a speech, at least at Vic Morrow's funeral. And I'm going to quote now from a write-up by Dick Peabody, who's one of Morrow's friends. They'd worked together in a bunch of stuff before. Um, and he's a close enough friend that Peabody winds up as a pallbearer at Mor- Mor- mm-hmm. Morrow's funeral. So this is, this is Dick Peabody's recollection of the funeral. I rode with them, them being Moro's family, to the funeral and sat with them in the section of the chapel reserved for family. Moments after we arrived, an audible shockwave of reaction from Vic's friends and co-workers who'd come to pay their respects grabbed my attention. A thin, bearded man was coming down the aisle, seemingly unable to walk without assistance. He was supported by a woman and another man, Miss John Landis and George Folsey Jr., the production manager of the Twilight Zone movie. The bearded staggerer was Twilight Zone director John Landis. His stooges helped him to the lectern, and he began a rambling eulogy, unplanned, unrequested, unwanted, and shocking to Vic's family and friends. His mere presence at the funeral was offensive to them. He did this, presumably, on the advice of his attorney. The most obnoxious remark he made, among many, was that he was proud to have directed Vic in what Vic himself considered the best performance of his career. Vic's girlfriend and his ex-wife, Barbara, both said that Vic thought the movie was a piece of shit, and he was ashamed to be connected to it. So I cannot confirm whether or not John Landis was telling the truth or or Dick Peabody was telling the truth about how Vic felt about this movie. It is worth noting that multiple other accounts back up Dick's retelling of events. In fact, Mm -hmm. some of them sound worse. According to several accounts, here is the full text of what Landis said. Tragedy can strike in an instant, but film is immortal. Vic lives forever. Just before the last take, Vic took me aside to thank me for the opportunity to play this role. Now, Caitlin, 
if you had mm-hmm. to calculate in a lab the worst eulogy to give after getting three people killed in a helicopter accident, could yeah. you do better than this? I think he absolutely nailed giving the worst eulogy imaginable. Uh, like the balls, number one, to get up and speak and say anything, but I'm sorry. And my life means nothing now. Um, like is one thing to get up and say, at least he was the best thing he ever did. My movie was his best moment. The ego. Unbelievable. I, the, the I just, I cannot even begin to comprehend the the size of the ego you have to have to do something like that. We need to have a law wherein if like a certain number of people vote that a situation is deserving of a, of a motherfucker getting hit in the face with a brick, then it's legal mm. to hit them in the face with a brick. And I think this would be my yardstick, right? Like if I'm arguing the Supreme court, <laughs> uh-huh. like what is the bricking? Like what is like the threshold for a bricking? Like right here, somebody should have hit John Landis in the face with a brick. That would have been fine. Yeah. I mean, it was according to, <laughs> it seemed fine that he was uh, he had the most dangerous film set unbelievable like so i think it's also worth noting at this point as we have a couple of times sometimes accidentally which is usually how people refer to this dude that john landis has a son max landis who we will discuss briefly at the end Mm -hmm. now max directed the film chronicle uh and most infamously the will smith flop bright since he was pretty active online at one point big reddit guy max landis people on reddit would often like troll him by bringing up the fact that his dad got three people killed and max blew up at them at one point in a fairly famous post among max landis knowers and one of the things he stated was that it's really fucked up for people to accuse his dad of having killed one of his best friends now that's bullshit i have come across no evidence anywhere that vic morrow and john landis were close most accounts seem to show that morrow was somewhat scared by the director and certainly worried about what upsetting him might do for his career a friend i think would be comfortable telling a friend hey i am worried about the explosions that you are putting next to me right um Now, I don't I actually don't think I'm not one to go to bat for Max Landis. I don't think Max Landis is lying here. I think this is what John Landis had to tell his son in order to, like, try and preserve, like, some sort of I don't know what term to use here. But like Probably, my guess yeah. is that is the lie that John Landis told Max, right? Mm-hmm. That like I Vic and I were great friends and like he understood the risks and, you know, it was just a tragic whatever. That's my guess here. Mm-hmm. So. Right. For the other funerals uh, and for what happened at them, I'm going to turn again to that write-up by Crime Library. Quote, At Renee Chin's funeral, a gray-faced John Landis, being held up by his wife and friend, showed up to pay his respects. The child's relatives fixed cold, accusing stares at the director, except for Renee's mother, who was sobbing. Landis also went to Micah Lee's funeral. The boys' choir, to which Micah had belonged, sang his favorite hymn, Jesus Loves All the Children of the World. There is no question that the accident traumatized the director. For several weeks after it, he was heavily medicated. At one point, he called a confidant and wondered if he would ever be able to ask anyone to take even the simplest direction. So, I will admit, first off, when I wrote this, I I misunderstood that as uh, John Landis asking them to sing that hymn. I think they're saying that that was Micah's favorite hymn. Uh So I will delete my objection there. Um, But like... 
it's this he's clearly doing a bit right every funeral he has the same people carry him in he's acting right like he is he's putting on a show for the court primarily and for his own future career to like seem less like a monster here but it's the same show every time like being carried in because you can't and among other things it's just basic ethics right really minimal human decency if you are going to a funeral and it is someone you knew that died but not like someone super close in relation to you Mm -hmm. you do not act more distraught than that person's parents or children or loved ones, right? Because it's about them, right? It's not about right. you. If, if it's just like someone you knew where it's like your friend's mom or something, you don't go there and like collapse because it's about them and that's putting more shit on them, right? Like that's kind of fucked up to do, you know? You, yeah, um, you don't act more devastated. You don't... Certainly as the speech. director of a film that these kids you've known for two days are in, you don't act more distraught than their fucking parents, you know? And and you don't draw attention to yourself by giving absolutely a not like you don't do you don't first of all you don't go John don't you shouldn't obviously you shouldn't, shouldn't go, go you shouldn't go to these these funerals and if you do feel some need because you actually are are ridden with mm-hmm. legitimate guilt which he, he clearly is not. Um, you slink in, you stand in the back, you don't draw any attention to yourself, and then you bail, you peace out. Even you that's questionable. But like, right, you, absolutely. you absolutely don't do this. You absolutely don't do any of the things that he did. No. Yeah. What a performative piece of shit. Now, the good news, Caitlin, mm-hmm. and I know you're concerned about this, <laughs> is that killing three people and being actively involved in a manslaughter trial does not hurt his career. Does not hurt his career. Um, no. While the case unfolds, which takes like three years, he directs four films and takes on a number, again, as we've talked about, high, he's, he directs the thriller video. Like, <laughs> yeah. Doesn't get a lot more high profile than that. Probably still like the biggest music video ever made Mm -hmm. in terms of its like cultural impact. He also directs the Eddie Murphy hit Coming to America, which is somewhat less influential. Now, there's a fun story with Eddie Murphy and and John Landis that we're going to tell in a bit. But first, you know what won't show up to the funerals of its victims and make it about them? These products and or services? corporation sure won't when <laughs> has labor activists executed in latin america they don't show up at those funerals do they bomb them sometimes allegedly mm-hmm. allegedly but they don't show up mm-hmm. here's ads The evidence keeps pouring in. At this point, the facts are undeniable. It's an open and shut case. Monopoly Go is the most fun you can have in a mobile game. Millions of people pass Go every day because this game is always bringing something new to the table. Countless crazy tournaments you can join with your friends as partners or teams. Constantly changing challenges like money sprees or treasure hunts that keep it fresh with new wild mini games. Timed events offering bonuses like massive multipliers or rent frenzies to help you get huge rewards. And there's so many rewards to discover. Rare stickers you can trade with friends to complete albums, delightful emojis to taunt people with when you raid their riches, unique playing pieces, and so much more. The verdict is in with Monopoly Go. There's something new to discover every time you play. So don't miss out. Go download it now for free on the App Store and Google Play. Bean Dad, The Dress. 
30 to 50 feral hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus, where every week I take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who were they? What made them so notorious? Why did the internet choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? I'll be talking to internet historians, experts, and yes, the main characters themselves to get a fuller picture. Because I think that even outside individual experiences, a character of the day tells us something about how the internet worked at that time and how the attention economy developed into the freaky three-headed dragon it is today. Together, we probably won't be able to properly log out, but we can take a walk down scary internet memory lane and see one day a little more clearly. Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Across Generations, where the voices of Black women unite in powerful conversations. I'm your host, Tiffany Cross. Tiffany Cross. I want you all to join me and be a part of sisterhood, friendship, wisdom, and laughter. In every episode, we gather a seasoned elder. But even with a child, there's no such thing as the wrong thing if you love them. Myself, as the middle generation, I don't feel like I have to get married at this big age in life, but it is a desire I have and something that I've navigated in dating and a vibrant young soul for engaging intergenerational conversations. I'm very jealous of your generation (laughs) that didn't have to deal with Instagram and Tinder. This is Across Generations, where Black women's voices unite, and together, you know how we do, we create magic. magic. Listen to Across Generations podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. We started talking about this incident. Drugs and uh, officials cover up. You couldn't believe it. From iHeart Podcasts. It's like the police knew who he was before they got here. A story about money, power, and corruption. The medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. Is he breathing right now? Yes, he's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. There's no way that that guy's a doctor. I'm Paul Pringle, and I'm an investigative reporter for the LA Times. This is the story of an investigation that starts in a hotel room in Pasadena, California, and reaches all the way to the top of two of the most powerful institutions in the city of Los Angeles. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. This is Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption. We're always going to have predators. It's the good people who stand by and do nothing that allow them to flourish. Listen to Fallen Angels. A story of California corruption on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. We're back. Uh, so Eddie Murphy and John Landis were friends at one point, right? Uh, mm-hmm. they'd, they'd been in some stuff together, um, you know, uh, and, and, and they're good enough friends that in the wake of this tragedy, um, Eddie goes to Paramount because he, he, you know, he, coming to America is like a script that comes to him first, right? I'm not going to get into the weeds of like how it gets made, but right. Mm-hmm. He's he's wanting to make this movie and he makes Paramount hire John Landis and give him a million dollars and final editing rights on the film, um, which is more than they want to sp- spend. And he does it because Landis is his friend and Eddie Murphy wants to give his friend a win. Now, 
I'm not saying Eddie's not a questionable dude because this is a questionable moral decision, Mm -hmm. but it's being a good friend. You can't deny that, you know, Um, (laughs) which is not being a good person, but it's at least Eddie. Eddie is a guy who will go to bat for his friends. This Mm -hmm. does show that. Um, So what's funny about this is that Eddie Murphy really does John Landis a solid. And then John Landis treats him like utter shit the entire time they're making this movie is just a nightmarish douchebag to this guy who is like saving his career it's a really weird call eddie murphy talks about this in a playboy interview and i'm going to read an excerpt from that now Mm -hmm. and again for an idea of the tone of this this is a playboy interview so murphy's (laughs) going to be saying some questionable things later on after he got the job, he brought along an attitude. He came in with this, I'm a director shit. I was thinking, wait a second, I fucking hired you. And now you're running around going, you have to remember, I'm the boss. I'm the director. One of his favorite things was to tell me, when I worked with Michael Jackson, everyone was afraid of Michael. But I'm the only one who would tell Michael, fuck you. And I'm not afraid to tell you, fuck you. And sure enough, he was always telling me, fuck you, Eddie. Everyone at Paramount is afraid of you. So that's weird. Mm-hmm. It also, again, like you really want to be the dictator of the movie when nobody's gotten killed. Um, but suddenly it's a, it's a team project when three people die, huh? Uh-huh. That's fun. Um, huh. Yeah. Um, so I'm not going to get too into the weeds on this interview, but it has some incredible lines from Eddie Murphy that really add some context to the filming of a classic comedy. Quote, what first put a bad taste in my mouth about him was when, after he hired co-star Shari Headley and all these other people, I said I wanted to take everybody to dinner. I didn't know anybody. But Landis grabbed Headley and said, you stay away from Eddie. Don't go near him because he's going to fuck you and ruin my movie. He just wants your pussy. I'm thinking, wait, oh no, this has nothing to do with being a fucking director. He's a control freak. Just assuming that I was trying to get the pussy is one thing. Even he, And even if I was trying to get the pussy, for him to try to stop me getting it because he was directing the movie, he's got a lot of nerve. Plus, it wasn't even about pussy. So again, well, put that Eddie on Murphy, right? Like, you know? Uh, it wasn't even a pl- plus. It wasn't even about I, pussy. I do kind of suspect Eddie, Eddie Murphy, Murphy planned on hitting on her, but it's still not... <laughs> It's still fucked up for John Landis to just say that, <laughs> but like, um, yeah, he seems what a power hungry, yeah, fucking dick piece of shit. Mm-hmm. Now this all culminates like the only like eventually Eddie just like threatens to beat the shit out of him and things okay. calm down, but they have not talked since. Like Eddie Murphy has hated John Landis ever since. Um, and we'll talk shit about him at the drop of a hat. Anyway, nice. um, back to the trial. So being a giant piece of shit, Landis and his lawyers opted for a strategy in which the above the line people blamed everything on the below the line people. Now, in Hollywood parlance, above the line workers are actors, producers, directors. That Those are the big names, right? Mm-hmm. The actual technical people, the crew folks, pilots, stuntmen, pyrotechnicians, mm-hmm. all that stuff. They're below the line. So Landis, because again, a bunch of above and below the line people have gotten charged here with manslaughter. Landis wants to blame the folks responsible for pyrotechnics and the pilot um, for everything that's happened. That's his plan. Throw his people under the fucking bus. Also, no wonder there's like a, a director get like becomes one of these just like power hungry maniacs 
because just just like language like that like if if you come to a set and you see that there's a, a hierarchy like that and then you realize you're at the top you're at the top of it i mean i guess i i mean it just speaks to how shitty a person uh is inherently if they just are in that situation they're like oh i'm above all these people look at all these below people there are below me and look at how below they are and i can exploit them and manipulate them and (laughs) well and also the whole system because like a lot of these lower people who get charged don't work again or at least not for years right Mm. Landis doesn't have that problem because you can right. the below the line people have a stink to them because three people died. Um, uh-huh. But Landis makes money, so there's no real consequences for him career wise. Uh, I hate it. So, for an example of how utterly crapulent these defense tactics were, I'm going to quote again from Crime Library. Quote. Braun, his defense attorney, called Landis an artist and praised his Twilight Zone segment as a cinematographic statement against racism and bigotry. He also gave a strangely cynical reason for the casting of the children. Children are classically used in films other than as principals, he opined, in order to evoke emotion in an audience because adults generally don't like one another, but everyone likes children. Kesselman called Cheyenne Hui Chen to the stand. Renee's mother spoke through an interpreter. She cried as she talked about watching her daughter die. So this is like a nasty, nasty case. Um, The jury eventually finds Landis and his fellow defendants not guilty of of manslaughter. A lot of it is like the same kind of shit you hear in like the O.J. Simpson trial. Like they're picking apart, like someone will say, well, I heard them say we're going to get arrested for doing this. And then someone will say like, well, who said it? When did you hear it? Like, is it possible? Like it's it's all about like creating whatever doubt you can. Uh There's a, a lot of theories as to why the jury acquits them people will argue it's because landis was famous or whatever um i uh i don't know um it's worth noting like a master manipulator so yeah and he's got a lot of money to put in and so does the studio the studio puts a lot of money into his defense Mm -hmm. the monday after he's acquitted um john landis appears on good morning america to celebrate he invites all 12 members of the jury to attend the premiere of coming to america which they do so fun fact about coming to america if you like that film that is wild now there are some like minor fines and some censure from like industry organizations and shit after the trial but john's career again just plows forward um the main personal consequence he faced aside from his son getting dragged on reddit was the end of his friendship with steven spielberg who again bounces for a while to be and they mm-hmm. they basically the studio because like there's initially an attempt to get him to like testify because he was the producer on this movie too. Mm-hmm. And the studio is basically like, he's too important to testify. And the court's like, okay. Wow. <laughs> okay. What? <laughs> I think the same thing basically happens with Kathleen as well. So before you think too positively of Steven, it is worth noting again, he is the producer of this movie as well. He is also responsible for the safety of the actors in this film um, and for mm-hmm. ensuring things like the illegal hiring of child actors for an explosive helicopter scene do not occur. There are allegations that Spielberg was on set that night. Um, I have not found any substantiation of them. And those allegations are printed by people who were 
who talked to folks who were on set. I haven't heard them directly from people who were on set. Mm -hmm. Um, Spielberg has claimed that the interviews in interviews that the tragedy made me grow a little, uh, which is a weird thing to say. Mm -hmm. Uh, In the wake of the disaster, he issued a statement. I was never at the Indian Dunes location of Twilight Zone on the night of the accident or at any other time. Now, to follow up to that, I'm going to quote again from the book Outrageous Conduct. That two-sentence letter marked the complete extent of Spielberg's sworn statements on the Twilight Zone case. Joe Dante, who directed a segment that had nothing to do with the Landis episode, had to give a deposition in one of the civil cases. Spielberg, who was the producer of the entire movie, did not do even that much. Nevertheless, Tom Buds argues that there was no compelling reason to interrogate Spielberg. There is no indication that Spielberg even knew anything about the hiring of the children. So... Yeah, I don't know. Mm-hmm. You can feel however you want about Spielberg in this. He never talks to Landis again. Like they're 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 not buds anymore. Uh, I don't know how much like blame to throw his way. A number of other directors do come out and like basically say fucking John Landis is a murderer after this. Like uh, there are some directors who like really go to the mat to condemn him. Um, in fact, mm-hmm. I'll actually pull a couple of those up. Um, Brian De Palma. Um, is uh-huh. one. He's the guy who directed Carrie, right? And The Untouchables yeah. said, quote, I don't think Landis was railroaded. It's difficult to imagine putting all those elements in one place, helicopters, explosions, children, night shooting, and not treading a very thin line. That's a combination you would try to steer clear of. Helicopters by themselves are very dangerous, even with very experienced stunt people. And as soon as you have inexperienced people on a set, you are adding to the danger. Landis's actions were definitely excessive. When asked why so many directors had rallied behind Landis, De Palma answered i have no idea maybe they're afraid of being sued hmm. um so that's okay, brian cool uh james l brooks who directed terms of endearments uh also mm-hmm. uh issued a statement if you hire children illegally pay them under the table and then they get killed that sounds like criminal negligence to me <laughs> so there are some people in hollywood who are like he fucking murdered those kids Good for them. Um, but stating, stating notably, although he doesn't talk to Landis, Spielberg doesn't say shit. Um, okay, Steve. Yeah, that could have done a little better there, Stevie. Yeah. Um, I don't. It seems unlikely he was on set. I don't think he directly had anything to do with this. Although you could argue that, like, you should have been aware of what was happening on this set that you were helping to produce you know in, in theory yeah yeah, yeah produ- i mean it depends on the kind of type of producer right. and stuff like some some of them don't step foot on set ever Th- this some is them, not that case right because right. they are also directing segments of this but mm-hmm. yeah in the years since the tragedy john landis has again had a great career he's also signed on to a petition in favor of child molesting director roman polanski um okay not surprised about that yeah big <laughs> roman polanski fan john landis um and of course his greatest crime after the murders was raising max landis i was just um, gonna say yeah so he uses his clout to get his son screenwriting and eventually directing jobs and max puts out a mix of some people will say that um um chronicle was pretty good i haven't seen it i watched american ultra which was very mediocre in december of 2017 he is accused of sexual assault by a former co-worker uh and then a couple of years later by seven other women who eventually mm-hmm. accuse him of rape assault and psychological abuse that borders he's got kind of a cult it's like this weird group of friends mm. that like he's always cycling people through and exiling people and like all this kind of like 
he's he's a fucked up dude, Max Landis. A bunch of fucked up shit. He is now running yeah. coaching uh, seminars, coaching screenwriters. His career seems to have pretty much cratered. Um, good. What a so that's good. Loser. We'll see if he tries to come back at some point. But a very Max Land. Another Max Landis story is the devastating Daily Beast article about the years and years of psychological abuse that mm. he did to a number mm. of women and how fucked up and insidious it was. Um, as a note, if you just find Google Daily Beast Max Landis, you'll get the URL for that. It's on a paywall, but if you type it, if you go to archive.is and you plug that link in, it'll pop up an archived version that you can read outside of the paywall. If you oh. want to know the kind of fucked up shit that Max Landis was doing, yeah. that's beyond the story today because we're talking about John Landis, who as fucked up as Max Landis is, his dad is worse because his dad murdered three people. Um, <laughs> it's just a whole family, a whole bloodline of great father son duo in hell. Yeah. Mm. And that's the story of John Landis, a guy who sucks. <laughs> What a bastard. Mm -hmm. So, I don't know, show up to his funeral when he dies and make it about you. (laughs) (laughs) I will. I really will do that. I think we all should. Do you have any uh, pluggables for us, perhaps? Oh, gosh, sure. I I sure do. Um, You can follow me on Twitter and Instagram. I've been doing this new thing on my Instagram stories where I recap a movie with as much detail as I can, um, it, speaking as quickly as I can, and doing the whole thing entirely from memory in 15 seconds or less. Brave. Wow. It's a bit that we all love and is super cool and fun okay. and good. So do, check do, do the movie pie. The movie pie. Oh, are you... G- <sighs> <laughs> First of all, I barely remember. I couldn't even... Yeah, I've never watched it while detail. not tripping. And I've watched it like seven times. I've definitely seen it, but it was like in college because I was like, I'm a film student mm. and I need to watch fucking Darren Aronofsky. It's a great movie to trip while watching. Although if you really want to fuck your head up, watch Tetsuo the Iron Man because that'll, oh, oh yeah. Okay. <laughs> There's a drill fucking scene in that one. But anyway, Caitlin. So those, so that, so I, I'm afraid I will not be doing a good job recapping the movie Pi. Also, as soon as you said that, I my brain immediately went to Life of Pi, and I was that's, like, that's Oh yeah, it's yeah. about a boy and the tiger in the boat. Yep, did it. <laughs> Crushed mm-hmm. it. Yep. <laughs> I guess my Pi summary would be math and Judaism. Mm. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that, that could be, again, don't remember a single detail about the <laughs> there's, there's a lot of both in that movie. <laughs> cool, cool, cool. Um, so yeah, check out those, uh, those Instagram stories. Follow me on those social media platforms if you must. Um, a slash please do because the more followers I have, the more validated I feel as a yeah. human per- person. And then uh, you can check out the Bechtel cast, which I co-host with Jamie Loftus, and we examine movies through an intersectional feminist lens. Well, follow Caitlin and find us both on Twitter once you've listened to this and tell us your Max Landis stories. I'll bet Mm. there's a number. I'll bet like a not insignificant number of the people listening to this show were like, oh, I had a run in with that motherfucker. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. There's a lot of them out there. Mm hmm. Mostly just inane, stupid shit, but also some horrifying stuff. So, anyway, that's the episode. Thanks for having me. Thanks for being on the show.
Behind the Bastards is a production of Cool Zone Media. For more from Cool Zone Media, visit our website, coolzonemedia.com, or check us out on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus. And every week we take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who are they? What made them so notorious? How did the internet or the algorithm choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleha Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take DC. We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.